Good morning. Uh, my name is Tony Pitts. I'm going to be reading uh, the scripture that uh, Ben is going to preach from this morning. It's, it's all of Acts chapter 10, actually. And I'm going to try and do it without my glasses here. So let's see. Uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for you coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, when Peter entered, <clears throat> Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for... I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. Thanks, Tony. That was a marathon, not a sprint. You did well. (laughs) Well, uh, we're in Acts chapter 10 this morning. And if you were with us last week, uh, then you'll know that Pastor Benjamin described uh, about the end of of chapter 9 through the middle of chapter 11 as the conversion of Peter. Or maybe it's better to say the reconversion of Peter. And we say this not because Peter was never a Christian, but because in this period, between the end of Acts chapter 9 and the middle of Acts chapter 11, he comes to understand the implications of Christianity for all of his life and ministry in a way that he didn't prior. And as I thought about this reality this week and the way in which Peter is reconverted here in Acts chapter 10, I couldn't help but return to the story of Jonah from the Old Testament. Now, Jonah has always been one of my personal favorite Bible stories. Um, I think it's mainly just because when I was a kid, I was really fascinated with deep sea fish, uh, so much so that I stole a book from the library and hid it behind my dresser that was uh, all about deep sea fish. Um, but as I've grown older, uh, I've come to realize that the, the brilliance of the book of Jonah, why it's so amazing, is because it's so challenging. It's so offensive to us. See, God calls Jonah to go preach to a terribly wicked people, a Gentile people, and Jonah refuses to go, and he runs from God. But then God hunts him down, and as Jonah ends up in the belly of a fish, he eventually says, okay, God, I'll do it, I'll go. The fish vomits him up on the sea, 
he goes, he preaches the lamest four-word sermon to the, that's like basically hellfire and brimstone to these Gentiles, and miraculously, they repent of their sins and turn to God. And after they repent, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, this is how we see Jonah respond. It says, but the salvation of the Ninevites was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. When faced with God's love for those who were different than him, Jonah's true heart posture comes out, and it's not pretty. And we get to the end of the book of Jonah, and Jonah does not change. In this chapter, God is going to call Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius in a similar way that he called Jonah to preach the gospel to a Gentile man, one who was considered unclean. And in this text, we're going to see God work miraculously to bring Peter to understand the implications of Christianity on the way in which he relates to those who are ethnically different from himself. And I pray that as we study it together, he would do the same thing for us too. While Peter is uh, the main character of this text, the passage really centers around this man, Cornelius. Uh, He was a well-respected Italian officer. He was part of this group, led this group called the Italian Cohort. He was an officer in the Roman military. And Cornelius, as it says in verse 2, was a God-fearer, which means he was a man who didn't convert to Judaism, but he did seek the God of Israel in some way. He was an upright and devout man who prayed to God and who gave to the poor sacrificially. And the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, Cornelius, I want you to send for a man named Peter in Joppa. And so he does. And then meanwhile in Joppa, we see Peter receive a vision. And Peter's vision is bizarre, right? We can acknowledge that from reading. I I love how it doesn't even, we, we often just talk about it like it's a sheet that falls, but the text actually says something like a sheet falls. We don't really even know what it is. And Peter doesn't really understand the full implications of this vision. You see, in verse 17, right before he meets the men, he he doesn't know what this vision is truly all about. But then he meets the men who were sent by Cornelius, and they bring him back to Caesarea. And he comes before Cornelius, and this is what he says. I'm going to read verse 28 again. This is what he says is the meaning of the vision that he saw. He says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, wait a second. You might think the vision was about food, right? Look at the vision and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says all these animals. But Peter takes it to be about people. What is this vision supposed to communicate to Peter and to us then? What are we supposed to take from this? Well, Peter's vision shows the breakdown of two specific barriers to non-Jewish people being fully included into the people of God and receiving salvation. So two specific barriers to non-Jewish people being invited into the people of God that are broken down in this vision. The first is uh, the, the barrier of purity laws in Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, if you go back 
to Leviticus chapter 11 in particular, you can see this. God gave Israel specific laws around what foods they could and could not eat. And these laws were primarily given by God to separate Israel out from the other nations as a holy people devoted to himself. And this is why, as Peter says in verse 28, Jewish tradition grew up around these laws that came to say Jewish people could not even eat in the home of a Gentile or stay in the home of a Gentile for fear that they might consume something unclean or come into contact with something that was unclean. Now, these laws were good and given by God, but they were given to the nation of Israel for a specific moment in a specific time. And now with the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new era begins, an era which does not have as its primary focus the ethnic nation of Israel, but rather a multinational, multi-ethnic people, the church. And so as a result, these good God-given purity laws had served their purpose, but now, as the vision symbolized, that barrier to full Gentile inclusion into the people of God is torn down. And they are welcomed in as full members of the people of God. That's the first barrier. The other barrier that's torn down in this vision is sinister and sinful in nature. You see, the Jewish people used these good purity laws given by God in order to puff themselves up and think that they were inherently better than the other nations. Think about the history of Israel with me just for a second. Israel starts with one man who, for no reason other than God's grace, God picks him and says, hey, from you, I'm going to start a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And so then from Abraham, this nation begins to grow. But then they get enslaved in Egypt helplessly. But God saves them out of Egypt. He brings them into the promised land. He delivers them from the nations around them. Israel had nothing to do with this. God didn't choose Israel because they were better than the other nations. God didn't help Israel because they were stronger than the other nations. They were a slave people. And yet God blesses them and helps them. And yet they fooled themselves into thinking that because they were God's chosen, they were somehow better than the surrounding nations. And this caused them to look upon the nations with disdain and contempt, even when God was at work among the nations, clearly like the book of Jonah. And church, we are no better than Israel on this front. Our pride specifically manifested in our tendency to view our own ethnicity or nationality as better than others is a threat to the spread of the gospel. Just like Jonah, you and I pridefully view our own nationality or political party or social class or ethnicity or religiously obedient group as inherently better than others, and we give the stiff stiff arm to those whom God wants us to love and to move towards with the gospel. You see, we form our own types of purity laws based on our own standards and push to the side those whom the Lord is working to bring into his people. And this is something that we are supposed to see plain as day in this text. And so think about this with me for a second. You parents in the room will understand this better than than others. If you want to communicate something to your child and you want them to get it, 
You use repetition. Right? So if, if a father wants his children to clean their room before he gets home from the store, he says before he leaves to them, children, I want you to have your rooms clean before I leave for the store. And they say, oh, yeah, dad. And then he says, no, 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 look at me and repeat what I just said. Put down your video games, put down your toys, and repeat back to me what I just said. And they say, yeah, we want you, we want to, you want us to have our rooms clean by the time you're home from the store. And then he gets his stuff ready, and right before he goes out the door, he says again, okay, kids, make sure you have your rooms clean by the time I come home from the store. He uses repetition. So why do you think Luke under the inspiration of God's spirit, recounts these two visions to us multiple times in chapter 10 on the lips of different characters. And then in chapter 11, he recounts the whole thing all over again as we're gonna see David preach next week. Like a parent with a child, Luke, under the inspiration of God's spirit, is emphasizing by repetition that our pride is a threat to the spread of the gospel, to all kinds of people, because we label people as unclean and off limits. So let's just state it as boldly and baldly as I know how to say it. Verse 28 condemns any trace among us of racism, ethnocentrism, nationalism, and elitism in our hearts because it condemns our pride. Discrimination is blasphemous against God and curses our fellow man because it places us above those whom God has equally made in his image to reflect his glory. This is not a political issue. This is a Bible issue. Racial slurs, uninterrogated superiority, and any other form of partiality have no place in our hearts and have no place in the people of God, we must uproot them. So how do we overcome this barrier to the spread of the gospel? How do we overcome our pride and move towards love, towards those who are different than us? Well, let's look at what Peter highlights for us in his presentation of the gospel. This is the climax of his gospel presentation here to Cornelius at the end of uh, chapter 10. It's verses 42 and 43. He says, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In this gospel presentation, Peter highlights the role of Jesus as judge in verse 42 and as savior in verse 43 to drive this point home. So as judge, Jesus tells us that the line of good and evil is not drawn between us and them, It's not drawn between our tribe and another tribe, but the line of good and evil stands between all of us as human beings and our creator. All people stand equally as sinners before a holy God. You see, purity laws aren't the real issue. Ethnic boundaries are not the real issue. The real issue is the condition of our hearts. But as Savior, Jesus tells us, That he, our creator, humbled himself by entering into this world and by taking our evil upon himself. 
You see, Jesus, the judge, was treated as a criminal so that criminals might be forgiven and see him as savior. Jesus was made an outcast and was condemned for our sin so that we might receive forgiveness and be brought in. And this is the best part, right? It's not only those like us that are included in this forgiveness. I wish we had more time to get into this. But at the end of the passage, this is what the spirit falling on the Gentiles is all about, right? Even our worst enemies, whom we exclude, can be, include, can be included in God's salvation, in the promise of the gospel. See, think about this with me for a second. These Gentiles here receive the spirit, The same spirit which the Jewish people received in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his spirit at Pentecost. What we have here is a Gentile Pentecost. And this spirit of God being poured out on his people signifies that these people are a part of God's new covenant church. His people, his plan for the world. These Gentiles are being welcomed in here. And this is why Peter throws up his hands in verse 47 and says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized? Baptism is the external handshake of fellowship confirming what the Spirit of God does in baptizing us. He's saying, you're welcome. You're now defined by your Christian baptism. We as Christians are not defined by ethnic, national, political, or any other boundary markers that we can pridefully use to keep others away. We are primarily identified by our baptism into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question remains, is that your primary identity? Is your primary identity in your baptism? Or is it in something else entirely? You see, basing our identity in a political affiliation, or our country of origin, or our ethnicity, can only lead us down a road of hatred, and vitriol, and fear, and shaming those who are different than us, and a lack of love. But a gospel identity, oh, a gospel identity is rich with potential. You see, a gospel identity allows us to reprioritize things which formerly controlled us, It allows us to reprioritize things that we would place as primary, as secondary markers of our identity. So the American flag, the donkey or the elephant, these things become secondary. Jesus as Lord becomes primary. That's what the gospel can do. And the gospel also allows me to have the grace to to approach those who hold to other primary boundary markers with love, even if they clash with my own. So I can enter into relationship with my neighbor who flies the rainbow flag or who flies the blue lives matter flag or who votes differently than me or whatever else, because these dividers are not ultimately what motivate me or what defines me. Who cares if people differ with me on secondary matters like this? They're not primary. They don't define who I am, and they are no barrier for the love of Jesus to flow through me to them. That is the power of the gospel. You see, this gospel message of Jesus as judge and savior is the explosive device in the walls that we put up in our pride because it it puts us all in need of grace. It puts us all on equal standing before God and says, all who would receive Jesus Christ can be welcomed in to this family. 
Our pride is no match for Jesus Christ, is no hindrance for Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit takes away this barrier of pride and self-consumption in our hearts, look at what results. This is beautiful. Look at what Peter says when he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. This is verses 34 and 35. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Do you see this? Do you see what Peter has come to understand? God shows no partiality, so how can he? Because God does not show partiality, we must humbly bring the gospel to and fellowship with in the church those who are radically different from us. You see, when the barrier of our pride is torn down, cross-cultural missions is what results. And there are those in every nation, even on our own doorstep here in Harrisburg, whom God would be delighted to save, whom God is working actively right now to save. About a year ago, our church hosted a showing of the documentary film, Jesus in Athens. I don't know if you had the privilege to attend that. Uh, It was one of the highlights in our church last year for me personally. Um, It was was a film about the way in which the gospel is moving forward in uh, those refugee communities that fled from uh, the Middle East to the Mediterranean Europe. And one common thread that ran throughout that documentary is you would have people recounting their stories of conversion. And they would say, I had a vision of a man in white that came to me. And he said something about the words of, something like the words that are on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. And then they wake up from this vision. And it seems like every time, almost instantaneously, another Christian came along and preached the Gospel, and they got saved. It was amazing. And of all the things, it reminded me that God is at work. God is bringing together Peter's and Cornelius's around the world and here in our very own community in Harrisburg. And so will we be the ones who bring the word of the gospel to those in whom the Lord is at work to bring to himself? You see, we are called to be that to other people, to be Peter's, to other Cornelius's, no matter what boundary markers are in place. Now, this is where it gets sticky There's nobody that's off limits for the gospel. So even though the world says that our neighbors with a pride flag ought to hate us, and we ought to hate them and call them unclean, it just might be at your dinner table that that gay couple who is your neighbor comes to know Jesus. And even though many would villainize and demonize immigrants to our country, God may be drawing them together. God may be drawing those who this is their country of origin and those who this is not their country of origin, even in our church, together for the purposes of the gospel. And even though racial tensions threaten to tear us apart in our country today, it might be you who moves toward your friend who is of another ethnicity in love and say you have kids on the same soccer team and you say, hey, do you want to coach with me? And through that relationship, they come to know the gospel and you exhibit what true reconciliation looks like. And even though there are voices everywhere telling you 
that America is the most important nation on earth. Maybe God is telling you to lay that national identity aside and go to the nations and go to Cornelius's across the globe and preach the gospel. See, God is working and his people, regardless of what is supposed to divide us, we have a part to play in the spread of the gospel to all who are far off. Way back in Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit falls on the Jewish people at Pentecost, this is what Peter says in verse 39 of Acts chapter 2. He says, The promise of the gospel is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, when Pastor Benjamin preached, this text at the beginning of our series through Acts in the fall, he said that that Peter here is likely preaching better than he knew. And I I agree with that. I think Peter here in Acts chapter 2 probably thought that those who were far off meant the Jewish people like himself who had been scattered across the nations since the time of the exile. That God was going to have an ethnic movement of the gospel and bring simply Jewish people back to himself. But by the end of Acts chapter 10, I think Peter preaches what he knows. That he comes alive to the radical non-partiality of God. And this is good news for each of us this morning because it tells us that we are not stuck. We don't have to be like Jonah. Jesus wants us to be humble by his grace. And he wants to change us into the kind of people that bring the gospel to others, no matter how different they might look than us, because we recognize that we are all in the same boat of, de- of deserving God's judgment, but receiving God's grace from Jesus, our Savior. And so may the grace of God cause each of us to come alive to the same truth today in a new way, ready to lay down what divides us and pursue others with love for the sake of Jesus Christ, that many might come to know him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust today that you are alive, that you are reigning, and that you are calling all men and women to yourself. Lord, we trust that you are at work specifically to bring people in our lives to know you. So, Father, I pray that all of the things that might threaten to keep us from sharing the gospel, to keep us from moving towards others in love, that you would tear those things aside, that you would root out the pride in our hearts and make us humble by the grace of Jesus. Make us awed by what we have received from your hand as our Savior and drive us out to love those who are radically different than us. And Lord, may we see, as we do this, may we see others come to Jesus who we didn't even want to talk to or associate with before. We pray all of this would happen by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.